mark. Yes. It is no longer the Christmas season. Unfortunately. But, weirdly, this non-Christmas movie we are covering is a Christmas Carol adaptation. I was very confused about the choice to just not make it a Christmas movie at the same time. But it was snowy, which but it was, was It was like they were gonna do it and then decided just not to, but then kept in the joke about is it Christmas at the end, and just... It was all very weird. Anyway, in the spirit of that, in the spirit of Christmas, if you will... <laughs> not that again. I was wondering... What is your favorite Christmas Carol adaptation? There is a correct answer to this question, and it is The Muppet's Christmas Carol. A fantastic movie. But I did, while looking around, I found one online that sounds interesting. It is a 2012 gay adaptation of A Christmas Carol called Scrooge and Marley. Okay. And it sounds very much just that. Someone describes it as, uh intended for gay audiences who enjoy watered-down camp and syrupy empowerment messages. And then Bruce Valanche, who plays Fezziwig, says, Fezziwig is the end of that party that was going on in the gay community in the 70s that was ended by the AIDS epidemic. Which, now I'm very curious about this, Phil. That is bizarre. (laughs) I know, it took like a twist from just the one Bruce Valanche quote that now I want to see it. Obviously, Muppet Christmas Carol is the correct answer. Michael Caine, possibly the best human to Muppet performance. But I also have to acknowledge the original animated Christmas Carol adaptation, Mr. Magoo's Christmas Carol, which is a play within a TV adaptation. It's like the character Mr. Magoo is playing Scrooge in a play version of Christmas Carol. And it's pretty great. It's a lot of layers in there. Look, animated... TV specials from the 1950s are deep. Yeah, I feel like you had to add more twists or layers to justify its existence on television at that time. Or something. I feel like there was always more to it. I love the era of the 50s to 70s when you also just ran out of things and added a new layer and then told the same stories again. Sure, I mean, there are dozens of television Christmas Carol adaptations. Yes, and I'm surprised. Is there a Christmas Carol in space? I mean, there must be but I don't know one off the top of my head. I'm sure if you Google that phrase, something will turn up. There is a Klingon translation of Christmas Carol that a Chicago theater company puts on, and they adapt it for Klingon culture. So instead of Scrooge being very greedy, Scrooge is a coward, because Klingon culture is all about bravery. There's also a Doctor Who episode, which I guess does put it in space. But I'm looking for just a direct translation, but with aliens instead. Like, I figured that would exist in the late 70s, early 80s. Like with the aliens from The Simpsons? Yeah, or um, all the aliens they encounter in Jabberjaw Goes to Space, or Josie and the Pussycats in Outer Space. Which other ones went to space? I can't remember off the top of my head. I feel like most people found their way there at some point. Scooby-Doo never did. That's how you know it's a true original, is they don't go to space. I feel like more TV shows should go to space. I Pick th- things up. Yeah, especially the prestige dramas, where imagine if they did Succession in space in front of the background of a 70s animated version of space. Yeah, Mad Men goes to the moon. Yeah, um, that I would watch. I was thinking about it, like a weird 2001-style moon. It works. But with Mad Men. Astro moon. 
Yeah, I mean, Ad Astra Moon is essentially, his complaint is essentially that it is the Mad Men version of the moon. Right, there's a subway! Yeah, anyway, as much as we don't want to talk about this movie, should we start talking about this movie so we never talk about this movie again? Uh, yeah, let's do it! Alright, welcome to We Love the Love, a Hollywood romance podcast. I'm Mark, and I'm gay. And I'm Will, and I'm a ginger. This, of course, is a podcast where we delve deep into the most important questions of our day, Specifically, does Hollywood romance actually make any sense? And are these people actually dateable? Or even likable? It doesn't matter if the romance is a main plot, or a one-scene flirtation, or if it's just totally incomprehensible. We will dig in and see what is supposed to be there. And this week, as we said, we are looking at a an adaptation of Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol novel, but from that weird era when Matthew McConaughey was a rom-com lead for the 2009 movie Ghosts of Girlfriends Past. I'm just going to say it right at the top. This is the worst movie we've covered for this podcast. I think you might be right. And we said recently that The Night Before Christmas was in the mix. And that is a movie that is aimless. I almost think this movie is worse because it thinks it is succeeding in charting a course. And is isn't. And it fails miserably. The opening scene of this movie made me want to take a shower. I felt soiled as a human by the experience of watching this film. So Matthew McConaughey plays our Scrooge character. His name is uh, Connor Mead, I believe. And he starts off so incredibly specifically sleazy and workplace abusey. And the movie doesn't actually do a lot to redeem him. And so when he's supposed to have his turn at the end, because, you know, it's a Scrooge story, he's kind of gone too far. And we're not really willing to let him do it. The movie opens with him abusing one of the women he's supposed to photograph. Yeah, sexually harassing. Yeah, he has his assistants take off her clothes without asking, and then shoots an arrow at her head without her permission. Yeah, and she explicitly says she was not briefed about having her clothes taken off. Yeah, it's he sexually assaults a model, essentially, in the opening scene, and it's supposed to be charming? Question mark? Yeah, that's why she has sex with him later, and even talks about how she's not looking for a relationship, she just wants to bone him. Like, every woman in this movie does. This movie asks us to believe that he is completely irresistible. Yeah, it's just unbelievable how much people are throwing themselves at him. I do think that part of the problem with this movie is the ways in which it fails as a Christmas Carol adaptation. For example, in Dickens' A Christmas Carol, Scrooge is warned by his former business partner, Jacob Marley, that he will be visited by three spirits, and that this is his last chance for redemption to save his soul. And seeing Jacob Marley is pretty jarring for Scrooge, in part because he is bound in chains, the chains he forged in life that Scrooge himself now metaphysically wears. In this movie, our Marley character is Matthew McConaughey's Uncle Wayne, played by Michael Douglas, who taught him to be a player. But Uncle Wayne is not bound in the chains, punished for the horrible life he led. He's wandering through the movie, having a good time. And he's telling McConaughey that he needs to be a better person, but we're not seeing that. Michael Douglas ends the movie hitting on a teenager. Michael Douglas should be in jail. He is a child abuser. In the movie. In the movie. Yeah, sorry, I just didn't remember his character's name. That does sound very harsh. <laughs> he absolutely should. He takes a middle schooler to a bar. And, and what f***ing what bartender would serve a 13-year-old whiskey? I don't when the joke is that Emma Stone says, like, someone called Child Protective Services. I was like, yes. Correct. 
These children should immediately be taken away from this man. Emma Stone was done dirty by this film. Yes, she is also kind of the best part of the movie. Yeah, I mean, obviously, the bar is very low. Like, she is given nothing, but does well with the nothing she is given. Right, which I think is one of Emma Stone's strengths as an actor, is if she is given nothing, she can still make it fun. But at the same time, I was just like, everyone in this movie has gone down in my estimation a little for choosing to be in this movie. Okay. That means we need to talk about the origin story of this movie, because neither of us had seen this before. No. And if we had done any research, really, we would have found out that it was dreadful. I hadn't done research when I picked it, but I knew a fact about this movie that so intrigued me that I really wanted us to talk about it. So this movie was originally developed in the early 2000s. It was ultimately released in 2009. It was originally developed to be a Touchstone release. Touchstone was the adult imprint of Disney. Whose first film was Splash, as discussed in our, like, third episode? Something like that. And it was being developed by the production company of the hot young star Ben Affleck to star him. That's just a sad foreshadowing of what his life is now. Okay, Would it be against his then-wife, Jennifer Garner? No, because she didn't join the movie until after he left it. Weird. Right, that is really weird. Yeah. Here's the other thing. Affleck, at the time, was tight in the Miramax crew, and he wanted his good friend, who had directed him in Dogma, Miramax director Kevin Smith, to make the movie with him as the lead. And we came very close to getting Ghosts of Girlfriends cast, starring Ben Affleck, directed by Kevin Smith. Honestly, I think Kevin Smith actually is very self-aware and could have made this movie better. I think he would have. I think that movie sounds much more interrogative of the ideas of the film and more willing to criticize the behavior of basically serial predator Matthew McConaughey. And that could have been intriguing, whereas this film really expects you to just kind of laugh along with these shenanigans. And it really doesn't work. Like when McConaughey goes down that hallway of like every woman he's ever slept with, and it is hundreds of women, and we're supposed to believe that all of them are still hung up on him? It's weird. It's weird. Anyway, so Affleck wanted Kevin Smith to direct it, and then Harvey Weinstein flipped out because Kevin Smith had a first look deal with Miramax. And so Weinstein started demanding that it be a co-production between Touchstone and Miramax, both of which were under Disney at the time. And at the time, Weinstein was having a bunch of fights with Michael Eisner, so Disney wasn't playing ball. So things kind of foundered, Kevin Smith left the project, and then Disney pulled the plug a few weeks before they were supposed to go into production. And that's when Affleck left it, and it eventually found its way to New Line, which is how we got this movie. Who would have wanted to fight for this film? Just somebody who was really demanding about controlling everybody he had a relationship with, a.k.a. Harvey Weinstein. Yeah, I mean, I guess he probably thought he saw himself in this film in terms of sexual predation. I mean, there might be that. (laughs) The other thing is just, on top of all of the terrible moral problems with this film, it is also a very bad script. Like, just the lines themselves are really bad. Like, the way they do exposition that he is a bad boy is that the model he assaults, while they're having sex, says, like, in fact, you're even famous for it. And it's just so unnatural. He is famous, like, worldwide, basically, or at least nationwide, for being good at sex. Is very strange. And being a jerk about it, too. Yeah. And it's just, they really shoehorn it in in such an unnatural way. But, like, everybody who 
meets him is like, oh, you're the guy who has sex. That's like, are there humans like that? No. I mean, clearly his uncle is supposed to be Hugh Hefner. Sure. Who is, I guess, famous for having sex in a way. All right. And I think that's like what they're going for. But it clearly just makes absolutely no sense. Who is that photographer that like actually was sexually assaulting people? Oh, I forget. Is that who this is based off of? Terry Richardson. Was this movie based off of his life? Maybe. I mean, this is not like a sexy story to tell. And But maybe. he was considered cool. Like, it didn't come out till like 2017. He was just considered like cool at the time. It the was... second paragraph of his Wikipedia, it says, Since 2001, he has been accused by multiple models of sexual assault. In 2017, brands and magazines started distancing from him. So that's cool. That's 16 years later. <laughs> Jesus Christ. The world is a horrible place. Yeah. Oh, joy. Um, this movie, of course, stars Matthew McConaughey at a weird moment in his career. This is the last rom-com that he's in. The big three, of course, are How to Lose a Guy in 10 Days, another terrible film, Failure to Launch, which is in the back DVD pile, and this one. After this, he's not in another movie for a year. He's not in any movies in 2010, and then when he comes back, he's doing the prestige drama thing. In 2011, he's in Killer Joe and The Lincoln Lawyer. In 2012, he's in Magic Mike. 2013 is Dallas Buyers Club. Much, much better movies. Yes, I was wondering though, because then I fell down a rabbit hole of looking up McConaughey's acting credits, and I was wondering if you can guess, by box office, McConaughey's top five films. How to Lose a Guy in 10 Days. How to Lose a Guy in 10 Days is number seven. Really? Yes. I guess, hmm, okay, um, Dallas Buyers Club, but I mean, it's Dallas Buyers Club is way down. Yeah, that movie was really big, but no one watched it. Exactly. <laughs> um, I don't know how many... Have we mentioned... Was it Failure to Launch? We have mentioned Failure to Launch, but it is not in the top five. Okay. Is that number nine. I assumed his rom-coms would be the big ones. The top rom-com is How to Lose a Guy in 10 Days at number seven. Okay. Um, I'm guessing it's not 2019's hit film Serenity. Uh, so people, believe it or not, is near at the bottom. <laughs> what? <laughs> what a shock. Um... I don't know. Can I give you clues? Yeah, give me okay. some clues. We're going to work up to number one. Okay. Number five is a big studio comedy set in a jungle. It famously involved blackface. Oh, God. Tom Cruise was in it, and Rob Demi Jr. <gasps> oh, Tropic Thunder. Okay, Tropic Thunder is number five. Number four, I have already mentioned, 2012, Steven Soderbergh. Oh, Lincoln Lawyer. Nope. No. Um, Dal- no. Jenny was in it. Magic Mike. There you go. Of course that's on there. Number three is a Scorsese movie starring DiCaprio. People think it's cool because they don't understand it. Shutter Island? No, more recent than that. Um, Margaret Robbie was in it. Oh, Wolf of Wall Street? Yeah. Number two is one that I love. It's a Christopher Nolan one. His daughter is... Oh, um, Interstellar. Yep. And number one is a DreamWorks picture. Was he a voice in a DreamWorks movie? It is the rare DreamWorks musical. Oh, God. Have we watched it? We have not. Oh, you know what? It might be Illumination. This movie's Illumination. It's not DreamWorks. Oh, okay. But it was released by Universal. It features all kinds of people. Uh, Taron Edgerton's in it. Renee Zellweger. <gasps> Sing! His number one movie on the box office is Sing. So, of those, only his number two is one where he's a lead. That's true. Interesting. Apparently, he does better as a supporting actor. I think that is In true. terms of box office, at least. Yeah, I think that's true. Interstellar's good. It's a great movie. We're recording this on the day that the trailer for Tenet 
came out, I and I'm very excited. Ugh. It's Nolan at his most Nolan, it seems. You know what's cool, though? That Warner Brothers can build their schedule around a tentpole movie that is called Tenet. It's not based on IP. It stars Elizabeth Debicki and John David Washington, and we're all just like, yeah, we're gonna go see that. She's on a boat at one point. Fantastic. And it's a, like, 10-second just... I don't even think she talks in it. And I was like, this is the most important part of the movie. Great. I can't wait. Um, This movie, Ghost of Girlfriend's Past, it opened on May 1st, 2009 in second place with $15 million behind X-Men Origins Wolverine. And it Th- topped out at $55 million. That does not sound good. It's not great. This really is the last gasp of that era. The last big one, of course, we've talked about is The Proposal. Right. But by this point, already, this is the last year that that first weekend of May doesn't have a Marvel movie. It's got X-Men Origins, but this is the year between Iron Man and Iron Man 2. Right. Every year after that, that first weekend, there'd be a Marvel movie in the year. Wow. What a transition age in cinema. Very much so. So I think that we should maybe just talk about this movie because it's very bad and we hate it. And that'll give us a chance to talk about why. I mean, I've addressed most of my points, which is the sexual assault that happens in yeah, the that's film. That's just the beginning. There's so much more to hate about uh, I know. That. One of my notes is, did a robot write this? Because none of the dialogue sounds natural in any way. It's very, very bad. I think ultimately the problem with this movie is that, like, we have all these women in that hallway scene talking about how they miss him and they want to be with him again and they're all hung up on him. The thing about A Christmas Carol is that, yes, in Christmas past and especially Christmas present... Scrooge sees the ways that he impacts other people in the world. But, especially in the novel, but also in most adaptations, Scrooge also sees the way that these are fully formed people who live their own lives. And it's not about him just realizing that he affects other people, it's about him coming to see those other people as people. And Connor in this movie is never challenged to do that second thing. He is just taught, your actions have consequences, not these other people have value. And I think that's the fundamental problem with the movie. They're missing the Cratchit dinner scene. Exactly. The closest thing we get to that is the three Skype girls having drinks. But... Isn't the same thing, because what's the one thing they talk about? Connor. Right. Even his assistant is there, and she's just talking about Connor. I feel very bad for her, because the actress is Noreen DeWolf, and she is born and raised in the United States, and I'm sure that they pressured her to do an Indian accent. Yeah, it doesn't feel natural. It does not. It was really raising my problem with a poo alarms. <laughs> yeah, because it that feels like a studio note. For no reason. For no reason, just to, like, add some spice to say a really, I'm sure, the offensive term they used. Yeah. Alright, so every week we break down the romantic plotline of the movie we're discussing into five points that help us to summarize the romance of the movie. So, Christmas Carol gives us a very easy structure. We have the beginning, we have the end, and we have three ghosts in between. It's a five-act structure. So let's start off with point number one, our prelude. The Marleys were dead to begin with. Oh, well, pardon me? That's how the story begins, Rizzo. The Marleys were dead to begin with. So we've addressed the opening, which is to establish him as this cool womanizer who's a really good photographer. He's like a Vanity Fair photographer. Yeah. And he is just like constantly flirting with people, trying to get them to have sex with him. He is actively, there's this woman that he was going to be photographing. He has his assistant's stripper without her consent. And we get a nice cut to them making out, getting ready to have sex. 
when his assistant walks in and is like, you have to do this Skype call now, and it is a simultaneous call with three women whom he is breaking up with all at once. I assumed it would be a Jack Donaghy having a conversation on the phone and with Liz Lemon making it work with, yeah, I expected that, but nope, they're all on the line. They know each one is there. And he's open that he's talking to multiple people. And, of course, we get this whole exposition at him of, the problem is you date a girl for two weeks and get them to fall in love with you. Like, who cares? One of them calls him a miser, which is pretty ham-fisted. I miss that. There's no reason to expect that, because he seems to spend money very freely. Right. It did remind me of that story that went viral on Twitter a while ago of the girl who was on a Tinder date and realized that her date had another date planned for an hour later and another date planned for an hour after that. And so she messaged all the girls and then they just went out and had a nice time and became friends. And what's the movie where it's like one of the only movies, I think, or it's the first movie where Nikolaj Coaster-Wallace is trying to break out of Game of Thrones, where his three exes, like, team up and trying... Where he's dating Kate Upton. Yeah, and it's like Cameron Diaz... It's called The Other Woman, right? Yeah, where they, like, bond. Yeah, Cameron Diaz, Leslie Mann, and Kate Upton. Yeah, that trope, and then killing John, whatever his name is, this trope of, like, women becoming friends after all being hurt by the same man, I find very interesting. So anyway, Connor is a huge dirtbag. He is weirdly famous for boning. Every time he encounters somebody, they're like, oh my gosh, you're the guy who has sex. Like, he's going to his brother Paul's wedding rehearsal, and all of the groomsmen, like, can't hold themselves together because they're so intimidated to talk to him. Not because he's famous as, like, a cool photographer, but because, specifically, he is famous for having lots of sex. And for sleeping with all of the bridesmaids except for one. It's super weird. It's horrifying. I just... Watching this movie made me so uncomfortable. Yeah. So the maid of honor at this wedding is played by Jennifer Garner, and... It is worth noting that when we get into the past, young Jennifer Garner is played by Krista B. Allen, who also played young Jennifer Garner in 13 Going on 30. It makes sense. She does look like a young Jennifer Garner. She does. But she keeps reeling him in, telling him to turn off his phone. Somebody asks if Connor will be photographing the wedding, and she's like, no, he can't take photos of clothed people. Yeah, she's clearly upset at him, and they have a very long history together. Yeah. Connor also says that he's not going to toast his brother because marriage should be abolished and love is a lie that leaves you weak, dependent, and fat. It's also very rude of his brother to say, like, can you give a toast tomorrow without checking with the bride, who is very clearly stressed about the wedding and wants it to be perfect, just had had a freak out about there not being figs in the salad like she ordered. I think it was pears because I had a Genovia thought. If you, I, s- I really don't care enough to think about it. But Gretchen Wieners had just had a fit about fruit in a salad, and then her fiancé is like, she'll be fine if I just ask someone to give a toast. And she also wasn't, and then he kept fighting back, and I was just like, very... Side note, the way they portrayed the bride, I don't remember her name, I just thought of her as Gretchen Wieners the whole time, um, as a bridezilla that was self-aware, I found very intriguing. 
because she would have freakouts and stuff like that and then immediately after be like i'm so sorry that was unacceptable i'm just so stressed about this wedding thank you for being supportive everyone it's like they wanted the humor of a bride freaking out but didn't want to be accused of perpetuating the sexist trope of a bridezilla so they like would have it happen and then immediately apologize for it I did not get it at all. No, the movie is really weird and doesn't really have space for anybody to be a human at all. I was going to say anybody except McConaughey, but he's not a human either. No, because it was written by a robot who doesn't understand human emotions. It was literally written by John Lucas and Scott Moore, who wrote the Hangover movies, Bad Moms, Office Christmas Party, etc. Oh, God. Yeah, this really fits in there. Yeah. I was struck by something in Manola Dargis's review of this movie in the New York Times where she said Jennifer Garner appears, quote, less as a co-star than a placeholder. You can almost see the words enter generic female leads in the screenplay. Yikes. But also that could probably apply to almost every one of those movies you listed. Yeah. So McConaughey is like going through his day being a douchebag and he goes to the bathroom and runs into Michael Douglas's ghost. Um, Michael Douglas is giving such a half-hearted performance as Michael Douglas. It's very disappointing. And, like, half of Michael Douglas will still get you somewhere. Yeah. Because he's got a weird energy that kind of works. Right. Like, he is a good actor. Yeah, very much so. You know what's a wild fact? What? His dad is still alive. What? Kirk Douglas is, like, 103. Oh, I always forget this. Yeah, he is... Still kicking. He's like the last Golden Age star. It's really weird. My god, that is insane. How old is he? He's like 103. I also did not know that Michael Douglas was Kurt Douglas's son. That's new. He is 103. Look at you. Nailed it. Years active, 1946 to 2008. Sure. That is a very long career. So Michael Douglas is our Jacob Marley. He tells us that McConaughey's life is very sad and he's got to learn to be comfortable and, like, spoon with people. But again, he's still, like, Michael Douglas playboy having a good time. So we don't quite feel the impact of Jacob Marley in Chains. McConaughey's, like, that's weird. Goes back out to the bar where he fondles the bride's mom at random and she's into it. That was the worst, maybe the worst part. He just, like, grabs this random woman's boob... And she's just like, hmm, they're all real, honey, or something. So bizarre. And he continues to hold them. Like, she doesn't swat them away, and they, like, have a conversation while he's just grabbing a stranger's boobs. He goes on a whole rant about, when did casual sex become a crime? I swim in a lake of sex. Like, buddy, it is 2009. Chill out. Yeah, it is so weird. He also says he prefers forking to spooning, which I thought was a strange comment. Yeah, and talks about... He says the line swim in a lake of sex at one point. Yeah. Which is just disgusting. Yeah. Um, update. Kirk Douglas still lives with his wife of 65 years, who is 100. Great. So, because I saw it was like, he has a wife. How much younger than him must she be if she's also alive? And it's like, oh, three years. (laughs) They must be, like, in some kind of, like, witchcraft organization. A hundred percent. That is keeping them alive. She is someone who was born in the Kingdom of Hanover in the German Empire. That's outrageous. Because it was 1919 when it still hadn't been, like, officially dissolved. That is wild. 
Exactly. Sorry, back to the movie, but that was a fact that I needed to share. Matthew McConaughey goes up to the one bridesmaid he hasn't had sex with and apologizes for not having had sex with her. Because that is the movie we watched. And then there's the uh, one thing I was like, it's 2009, so obviously there's a lot of weird problematic elements regarding sexuality. And yes. In particular, non-heterosexuality. It was first brought up when he's, like, flirting with a woman and the bartender... The mom... Was it... No, I think this is... It's the... With the blonde bridesmaid. And the bartender's like, that was insane. And he's like, it works every time. And the bartender's like, would it work with guys? And Matthew McConaughey's basically like, probably. And then it moves on. And I was like... I didn't hate that. I was like, what a normal, like, normalized discussion about it. And then... McConaughey wasn't weirded out about it. No. And I was like... The guy wasn't really, like, stereotypically, like, flamboyant or anything. I was like, this is kind of nice. I know. I was like, this is a very good like it's part for 2009 about a gay character right Where but not at his expense for being gay it's more at mcconaughey like you know i don't know let's try it and then later in the movie of course uh, he often describes having emotions as fruity and other disparaging terms for gay people and there's a lot of other stuff happening and i was just like Ugh. 2009 was a terrible time. It came so close. It came so close. Honestly, if that was the only queer representation in the movie, it would have been, like, one of the better of the rom-coms we've covered. Yeah. But they just had to go and ruin it, because this movie ruins everything, including my view of humanity. So, McConaughey goes up to his room. This is point number two. Yes. The ghost of girlfriend passed. What are you doing here? Oh, I'm like a ghost now. Yeah, yeah, the ghost of girlfriend's past, in fact. He goes up to his room to have sex with a blonde bridesmaid, but instead of that, it is a teenage, giant, frizzy-haired Emma Stone. 80s dress. And it is a Multiple scrunchies. Like, how am I angry at both Emma Stone and a title drop? That's how bad this movie is. When she goes, I'm your ghost of girlfriend past. And I was so angry. I know, it was just... I don't remember that she snorted. But she probably snorted. She probably did. And it would have been, like, she could have sold it in another situation. But just this movie gave her so little to work with. Like I said, I think she does well with what she's given. Yeah. Anyway, so they have to go back through his past relationships. And they flash back to, like, some birthday of his. And he's running around racing young Jennifer Garner. And young Jennifer Garner gives him a camera for a birthday present. It's like, ah, that's how he became a photographer. And his first pictures of Jenny, and she tells him to keep it forever, which, you know, never comes up again, of course. So, I will say it's kind of fun that Emma Stone can rewind scenes. Yeah. Watch stuff again. That is, like, a cool thing that a movie did. Yeah, because he says, like, I didn't say that. That must have been my brother. And she rewinds it multiple times to show it to him. Yeah. Then we cut to a middle school dance. These middle schoolers are older than my high school students. (laughs) Yeah, Emma Stone is supposed to be 16, and I think she's, like, 20. But, like, middle school McConaughey and Jennifer Garner are still, like, middle school McConaughey is, like, 19. Yeah. Maybe that's how he got into the bar. Yeah, he doesn't look 13. No. So, they're having a dance, and McConaughey gets sad because he went to the dance with Jenny, but he couldn't get up the courage to actually ask her to dance, so she went and danced with somebody else and kissed somebody else. So he gets in... Michael Douglas's car, which is called the Stabbing Wagon. Oh, God. And we hear all kinds of outrageous things. Old McConaughey tells Emma Stone that Michael Douglas invented the word MILF. And 
young McConaughey announces that he hates women, so Michael Douglas is like, no, I'm going to mentor you to understand how to engage with women. So he takes a middle schooler to a bar, orders two whiskeys, both of which are delivered. That bartender needs to lose his job immediately. Yes. And probably go to jail. And then Michael Douglas teaches McConaughey how to neg women. Yeah, and how to just do all of the worst, you know, pickup artist techniques. It's awful. It goes on for far too long, also. It's horrible. Every time Michael Douglas is interacting with one of the children, I just am so skeeved out. This is the window where Emma Stone is like, oh, someone called Child Protective Services, and the response should be, yes, do that. Yeah, and it's disgusting that Matthew McConaughey can't see how inappropriate this is, too. Like, old McConaughey. Yeah, like, as a grown-up, like, you'd think that he would be able to look back. And, I mean, obviously this character can't, but it's just such an indictment of how messed up he is that he can't look back and be like, you know, I shouldn't have been given alcohol when I was 13 by my primary caregiver. So, then we cut to Michael Douglas then homeschools McConaughey for like, the next two years, and we see McConaughey arrive at a high school party, totally ignore Jennifer Garner, and make out with Emma Stone for, like, half an hour. Yeah, and that's the best 39 minutes of her life, because no matter what, McConaughey is, makes every woman fall in love with him. Forever. Um, so then we see him again, where he runs into Jennifer Garner at a bar, and is, like, insisting that she talk to him. And just tries to take her home. And she's like, no, no, no. Repeatedly mentions he makes $150,000 a year. And I'm like, a big old douchebag. you know, she's a doctor. And she does call him out on that. Famously known to be well paid. Yeah, she does call him out on that. And she eventually is like, if you want to try to like get with me, you have to actually date me. And so we have a dating montage set to time after time. Ugh, god damn it. And they eventually have sex, after which he immediately starts getting dressed to leave. She says, like, if you leave, don't ever call me again. So he gets back in bed, and then he leaves. Yeah, because he realizes he's spooning and not forking. Right, he prefers forking. And so then he just leaves, and then present-day Matthew McConaughey is sad because, you know, it's starting to take effect, even if he doesn't accept it. This is also when he has to walk down the aisle of every one of the hundreds of women and one man that he has had sex with. Yeah, and then he gets rained on by all the tears of the women he's Good hurt. God, I screamed <laughs> out loud when that happened. And then it's all the tissues, the tissues that have been spent on him. And then all the condoms, and he gets in his car as you hear like squelching outside. And it was like, this is the worst movie we have covered. It is so dreadful. There's nothing redeeming about McConaughey's character. He doesn't even really learn a lesson. No, he just learns that he likes Jennifer Garner and that it's rude to ruin your brother's wedding. And the thing is, fixating on a woman who is not into you isn't charming. No, and, like, Jennifer Garner's character is also done dirty by the fact that she isn't over him. Like, I know they've had a long history, but it's very unrealistic for her to still hold a candle for this man. Right, especially when they've got a nice hottie named Brad who's there explicitly to have sex with her. So, we had a bit of technical difficulty, so I lost the exact train of thought. But, yeah, so Brad's there, he's hot, they're gonna bang, but also, 
One of my favorite fun facts about this movie, the actor who plays Brad is a 9-11 truther and was the narrator on a 9-11 truther documentary. And in the TV show he was in at the time, they then wrote this into an episode where his character mentions he's a 9-11 truther in an interview and that becomes the plot of the episode. Are you serious? Yes, this is real. I think it was Rescue Me or some fire... Yeah, his name is Daniel Sanjata. He was on Rescue Me. Yeah, so his firefighter gives an interview and mentions this and that's like they address it in the episode that is bizarre i know i feel like it needed to be said no i'm glad it was so at this point we've kind of come to girlfriend present which is our third point i am the ghost of christmas present this is the night before the dawn before the day of christmas (laughs) did i tell you that i am the ghost of christmas present mcconaughey has left teenage Emma Stone behind and we discover that the ghost of girlfriend present is his assistant from work because she is the woman who's involved in his life the most I mean it makes sense because she is a woman he gets to boss around and not treat like a human which is what he likes to do which is his favorite part of women so so she's like giving him a hard time he goes into the house where stuff related to the wedding is going on some people are having a nice time And the big thing that happens is he knocks down the wedding cake and totally destroys it. And unsurprisingly, people are not happy about that. No, people are pissed, but then he he does wind up cleaning it up and taking care of that. He apologizes to Jenny for having treated her like garbage back when they were sort of dating. And then he kisses her and tells her he loves her. Yeah, it's not good because this character doesn't make any sense i know it's like he learns the lesson just so fast that we don't believe it and we're like this guy's still a scumbag right and i never believe that he won't i mean we'll address this at the end i never believe that he has experienced any change and he will immediately panic and leave jennifer garner no he seems terrible so she realizes this in this moment, and she says no. She's like, I know I'll wake up alone the next day and won't be a part of it. Meanwhile, all of the Skype girls that he broke up with at the beginning of the movie, we learn, are now friends and are hanging out with his assistant. Who, uh, it seems like she's done this before, where she hosts the women he breaks up with just to bitch about her boss. Yeah, this does not seem like a new event. It also doesn't seem like a healthy work place relationship and she should probably quit oh totally oh apparently according to my notes this is where the all of the tears of the women he broke up with come into play oh right because it's after his uncle shows up again that that happens i have this phrase in my notes i don't know where it came up but the phrase estrogen lynch mob was said in the movie and that sure is a turn of phrase uh it's um when he tells one of the bridesmaids that one of the other bridesmaids had slept with his brother, and then it comes out that it happened while he was dating Gretchen Wieners, the brother. Well, Paul, the brother, was yeah. dating Gretchen Wieners, yeah. And so then it becomes a whole thing, and he gets yelled at, and then he uses the phrase estrogen lynch mob to describe Paul getting attacked by the women. Yeah, this is a very tasteful movie. He does make the valid point that she should also be mad at the bridesmaid, but... Right. Is basically completely forgives her while she's mad at him, which is a very weird double standard. And I feel like she should also want to end the friendship if she's going to end the marriage. Yeah. Anyway, that's kind of our girlfriend present. He's also, this is the moment, he finds out that Paul had been defending him and it was very nice. But this is the breaking point and Paul's like, we're done. Get out. You stink. You stink. You stinker. And 
the ghost of girlfriend present shows him that once he leaves, everyone starts having a much nicer time at the party because he's the worst. Exactly. And so then he goes outside and we get the point four. Yep. Ghost of girlfriend girlfriend future. future, Who is is a blonde lady in a white dress. Yeah. And who doesn't talk and is not his future girlfriend. It doesn't have to happen like this. It's not going to happen. Nothing you can do about it, Dutch. You made your bed. Now you got to bang whatever crawls into it. That's what I keep trying to tell you. But she does take him to Jenny's wedding, and he's like, all right, I'm here, I got it. But Jenny is marrying Brad, who is a 9-11 truther. Right. And honestly, good for Jenny. She should still marry Brad. Honestly, yeah. Even as a 9-11 truther, he is better than Connor. It would take a lot to be worse than Connor. But Connor announces she was always supposed to be with me, getting into that weird, meant-to-be notebook fixation that's so gross. Right. And he is eventually led to his tombstone, which has no dates on it. Yeah, and the only person at his funeral is his brother, who barely says anything nice about him. There is a priest who, in his eulogy, says that Connor was a good friend to the church, which I thought was fascinating. Yeah, I would not have pictured him as a religious man. It's an unusual thing for them to bring up. Yeah, so then, end of future thing, he realizes- He gets buried in his own grave. You know, the freak out situation. He wakes up in his bed, flings open the window, and shouts to a child shoveling, You boy, is it Christmas? And the kid's like, no, it's Saturday, you idiot. Which are not mutually exclusive. Correct. But anyway, he then has his whole, like, realization. This is point five. But I can guarantee you this. Any pain that you feel will never, ever compare to the regret that comes from walking away from love. As someone who's felt a lot of both... Trust me, pain beats regret every day of the week and twice on Sunday. He chases down the car. He convinces his brother's ex-fiance to actually marry him. So he gets the wedding back together. And then he and Jenny work together to get it all set up. And he gives a big speech about how, like, the one who cares the least does have the most power, but relationships aren't about power. And then I'm assuming he and Jenny are, in theory, supposed to live happily ever after. That is certainly what we are led to believe. So, Will. Yeah. Based on our discussion, I'm going to guess that you're going to lean towards no. Do you find the romance of Ghosts of Girlfriends past believable? No, it's reprehensible. It's absurd that he is famous for having sex. It is absurd that all these women are still hung up on him. And it is absurd that, frankly, anyone finds him charming. Yeah, so every week we rank the believability of romances on a 10-point scale. Where would you put Ghosts of Girlfriends past? Maybe a zero. I think there's nothing. I mean, the only thing is that they've known each other for a while. Yeah, so she knows how terrible he is. The longer you know this character, the more obvious it is that he is not worth spending time with. Exactly. So, I agree. I'd go with a zero. Yeah. This is, again, possibly the worst movie we've ever done. I think it's there. I'm... Every other movie has not been nearly as problematic while at the same time being bad. Like, Maid of Honor and How to Lose a Guy in 10 Days are probably the other two that made us the most mad. But they were nowhere near as bad as this in terms of just the despicability of the character. And because the movie thinks that it is a redemption story, this is also just fundamental incompetence. Yeah, it's a very poorly done movie. So do you think Connor or Jenny is dateable? No, because if Jenny is willing to forgive Connor, that is detriment to her character. And is also hung up on him for all this time. Yeah, so absolutely not. No. Do you think that Jenny and Connor would stay together? No. They're not going to, obviously not going to stay together. They have a shelf life of three weeks. Yeah. If you did have to pick someone to date, though, who would you choose? See, this is a tough question. Um, 
You know what? No, I was going to say the bride's mom, who McConaughey fondles at the bar. Because she does seem like someone who knows what she wants and is a pretty good time. But I don't even know about that. No, I honestly was leaning towards the bride because I feel like outside of her wedding context, she seems to be just a normal, caring person. Yeah, I think that might be the move. We also need or, to talk about the bride's dad. The bride's dad, who is really intense about his time in Korea, but definitely is not old enough to have spent yeah, time fighting in Korea. Way too young. Was he, he would 10? Have to, he would have to be over 70 to have fought in Korea. That was just such a weird choice. It was very strange. Now, Ugh. many of the movies that we've covered on this show have been turned into stage musicals. Should Ghosts of Girlfriends Past be turned into a musical? Ghosts of Girlfriends Past should never be seen by another person, so no. Yeah, I have to agree with you there. All right, so I think that about does it for this god-awful film. Thank goodness. Next week, we will be taking a week off of our usual situation to run through what are allegedly the best romances or at least the best movies of this year, in our 2019 Oscars extravaganza. Because the Oscars have never gotten it wrong, and they always reward excellence. Exactly. Just ask Academy Award winner Nick Vallelonga, author of the forthcoming movie That's Amore. Patty Amore will save us all. Until then, you can follow the show on Facebook and Twitter at LoveTheLovePod, and you can email us questions or movie suggestions at LoveTheLovePod at gmail.com. Make sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show, because it really helps us out. Last question, Mark. What is the best piece of dating advice you got from Ghosts of Girlfriends Past? Dear God, everything in this movie is reprehensible that Connor does. Yeah. Maybe if you're trying to set up your friend with someone, be open and honest about the expectations of it instead of trying to play it coy. Because I feel like having Brad and Jenny both know that they're on the same page of being a setup and Brad describes himself as the wedding sex partner. You know, besides the fact that Jenny is a crazy person, it probably could have worked out. There's value in that clarity. Exactly. Yeah, I think that's the best thing. I got nothing else. So until next time, I'm a ginger. <laughs> I'm gay. So between the two of us, we know everything there is to know about romance. Bye! Bye. That work is paying off, cause Scrooge is getting worse every day.